This is a podcast from thebuglepodcast.com. The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 1099 of The Bugle for the week beginning Monday, the 18th of December 2034, with me, Andy Zaltzman, live from Wandsworth Prison in the Chinese colony of London, and joining me from Manhattan Island, Giulianiville, it's the former United Nations Secretary General, Joanna Oliver. Just kidding, folks, it's Bugle 199, of course, for the week beginning Monday, the 25th of June 2012. 199. Just one to go until the big one. With me, Andy Zaltzman, live from Olympics Town. And in New York City, it's Brigadier Showtime himself, John Oliver. So, Andy, I think you've lied about eight times before I've even <laughs> said a word there. That, is, uh, that might be a record. Before we've even said hello. Even before we've begun properly, you've already lied an astonishing amount of times. Well, that's, you know, I found that, that worked with my marriage. Why not with this beauty? <laughs> Andy, I know there are concerns around the world that America has lost some of its spark. Well, after reading about something that happened last week, I'm really not so sure anymore. What is the most American thing you can think of? Maybe uh, an American flag leather jumpsuit? Uh, Maybe George Washington having sex with an apple pie? Or is it this, Andy? A Class A South Atlantic Baseball League recently held a home run derby on the deck of an aircraft carrier. (laughs) That's right, Andy. They hit home runs off an aircraft carrier into the Charleston Harbour. Is that American enough for you? <laughs> Hitting baseballs off a warship? How about if I add the fact that they hit those dingers from the deck of the warship while inside an inflatable batting cage? <laughs> why, in- why inflatable, you ask? No reason. The very fact that you ask, in fact, shows that you will never fully understand. Surely, anyway, it couldn't get any more American than that, correct? Surely it couldn't get any more American than home runs being hit off a warship from a pointlessly inflatable batting cage. Right? Wrong! Because those balls were then scooped out of the water by volunteers on jet skis. Now, (laughs) if you're an American and you're hearing these words for the first time, you're probably already in tears by now. But let's recap all that information from the top. Baseball players hit home runs from an unnecessarily inflatable batting cage from the top of an armoured aircraft carrier while volunteers chase their balls on jet skis. Those should technically be the new words to the American National Anthem, Andy. (laughs) Oh, say can you see the home run I just hit? From the top of this ship that is filled with explosives (laughs) From an inflatable cage out into the sea My bullet did fly past a bunch of jet skis Oh, say, is this the most American thing that has ever (laughs) happened in the land of the free and the home of jet skis? (laughs) I'm choked up. (laughs) Number one! Number one! (laughs) Were they all dressed as Elvis while they did it? Oh, that was the one thing they missed. <laughs> the one thing. All dressed up as fat Elvises. 
the really American Elvis, the one close <laughs> the to truly, complete self-destruction. The one who epitomised everything that nation is about. <laughs> so uh, this is Bugle 199. 199, of course, the words famously spoken at the 1938 Berlin Snooker Open when Adolf Hitler potted his first red. Then demanded he'd be given eight extra points for being Führer. One... Nine! Nine! (laughs) (laughs) And uh, for the week beginning Monday the 25th of June, meaning it's exactly 200 years to the day since in 1812 Marshal Ney inadvertently invented the game of charades whilst trying to warn Napoleon that he was about to be bitten on the leg by an escaped locust. (laughs) Historic moments. Top story this week, Hosni Health Update! Well, what a week it has been for the health of Hosni Mubarak, Andy. If you had money on whether or not he was going to be alive over the last week, then it was a real roller coaster of emotion for you. Because first he was alive, then he was reported dead, then reportedly only nearly dead, then pronounced clinically dead, then pronounced alive again, and now no one seems to know exactly where he is. He's been like a yo-yoing Jesus, Andy, with... Only slightly more expensive-looking sunglasses. <laughs> uh, it's been a classic, uh, as the South Africans would say, a Hosni-Hosni saga. And, uh, well, you know, he's always split opinion like a cheap banana, yeah. John. And uh, this week, as you said, the 29-time uh, former Egyptian President of the Year has had the world bickering over whether or not he is or isn't dead. Just as for so many years he had the self-same planet squabbling over whether or not he was or wasn't a goodie or a baddie. Is he dead? Mm-hmm. Isn't he dead? If so, how dead is he? Is he irreparably dead, fleetingly dead, spiritually (laughs) dead, or merely facing just a little bit of a blip in his political career? Time, the persistent and insufferable smug shitbag that she is, will tell. (laughs) Initial reports from his doctors were that he'd had a heart attack, then that he'd had a stroke, then that he'd had a heart attack and a stroke. Uh, Reports swirled that he had no pulse, that he'd been (laughs) defibrillated. Uh, He was then brain dead, clinically dead, or to put it in Monty Python terms, he was dead parrot dead. (laughs) This dictator is no more. He has ceased to be. He's expired and gone to meet his maker. He's a stiff. He's kicked a bucket. He's shuffled off his mortal coil, run down the curtain and joined the bleeding choir invisible. This is an (laughs) ex-dictator. But then... After the doctor's reports came statements from his lawyers saying that, actually, he was very much alive. Classic lawyers, Andy. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, they're the the ones that have made the money out of this, aren't they? (laughs) I guess that, that is the... That is the fundamental tenet of the legal profession. You have to explore every argument. Is he dead? You have to posit the other side powerfully and strongly. Um, they, so they said he was very much alive and, uh, he in fact, just wanted to be moved from prison to the military hospital that he'd been in before. So it just depended who you believe, Mubarak's doctors or his lawyers. And then came the rumours. You started wondering whether... He had indeed died, but they were going to try and keep him alive like a human puppet, or whether he hadn't died at all but had pulled off an Elvis. He'd faked his own death and was currently working in a Starbucks in Arizona. It's hard to know how to react, Andy. You know, I don't want him to be around to hear his own f***ing eulogy. That doesn't seem right. So it feels like we, we kind of got to hold our fire on this one. Well, I mean, there was a lot of talk on uh, the, the Bugle Twitter feed uh, of people wondering whether there would be a f***ing eulogy this week, which obviously... You know, it didn't just come down to whether or not he was alive or dead, but whether or not he, he actually merited it. Because let's not forget, John, he was a man... Good point. Good you know, point. Who, he, he certainly had flaws, but mm-hmm. Tony Blair, the self-appointed stepson of God, described Mubarak <laughs> as, quote, immensely courageous and a force for good. And this was about the same time that there were thousands and thousands of people 
from Egypt on the streets, being slightly less complimentary towards the man. And Blair saying that, saying that he was immensely courageous and a force for good, mm-hmm. immediately, instinctively, as a citizen of the nation of Blair, <laughs> Blair was prime minister of, make you think that Mubarak was a born coward and probably a criminal. <laughs> the Egyptian people, as I said, had a slightly left, less complimentary view of the Big H. Um, maybe they just didn't, didn't know him as well as Tony did. You know, maybe you got to see his softer side. And uh, the Egyptian legal system also didn't agree with Blair, if I can correctly read the subtext of his recent conviction for corruption and basically murder. Um, <laughs> and it just shows the show, John. One man's crackpot dictator is another man's bulwark against regional chaos. And in fact, one man's crackpot dictator is often the same man's bulwark against regional chaos that we just have to put up with being a crackpot dictator or we'll get regional chaos. <laughs> and uh, the conflicting reports are not helped by Mubarak's own Twitter feeds at Hosni Mubu. <laughs> in which uh, he wrote, What happened? I just woke up in a skip with the remnants of a doner kebab all over my trousers. Hashtag, whose stag night was that anyway? And then another one saying, Doc's saying I might be clinically dead. Bummer, I am having a bad month. Hashtag, no Wimbledon for me this year. Oh, very good. (laughs) Um, Besides, Andy, there now seems to be much more important things going on in Egypt than the debatable beatings of Mubarak's debatable heart. Um, <laughs> Egypt's election... E- Your debatable heart. <laughs> Egypt's elections came and went, and they currently find themselves in a depressing democratic limbo. They voted once, Sandy. They voted twice. And then, when it looked as though Mohammed Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood were about to win, the army swooped in and basically told everyone to go f- themselves. <laughs> it's a tango as old as time. Uh, the results of the runoff have been officially delayed now by the election authorities in Egypt. They had uh, been due to be announced on Thursday, but the election commission said it needed more time to look into complaints presented by the candidates. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood's Mohamed Mursi and uh, former Prime Minister Ahmed Shafiq both claimed that they won last weekend's vote. Basically, they were like two boxers at the end of a fight, <laughs> both raising their arms in victory, both battered and bruised, with no one noticing that someone in a military uniform had just run off with the scorecard. <laughs> so a year and a bit on from the revolution uh, last year, the situation is not quite optimal democratically. The uh, gloriously peaceful transition to a smoothly functioning democracy that everyone hoped would happen has not quite happened yet, which is, you know, we we in Britain, we did that easily, John. I mean, admittedly, it took us around about 700 years to do it, but we still Mm -hmm. did it, and the Egyptians might have to just tuck in for the next seven centuries. But as you say, was this uh, a military coup, the military taking power? Was it a military coup, a coup light, a bit of harmless fun, or just a bit of nostalgia for a, a simpler time? Because it is a fact, John that things were so much easier in Egypt when everyone knew where they stood socially purely by how big and pointy a pyramid they were going to be buried in. Maybe that's a lesson that we all need to take on board. After after the second round of voting, a group of election monitors headed up by uh, ex-president Jimmy Carter uh, voiced concerns about the political and constitutional context of the vote. President Carter said, I'm deeply troubled by the undemocratic turn that Egypt's transition has taken. Uh, Egypt hasn't so much taken a democratic turn, Andy, as slammed on the democratic handbrake, (laughs) dived out of the car and watched its election hurtle over the side of a cliff. And America itself is in a tricky spot at the moment because America loves democracy, Andy. They love democracy 
as much as they love hitting baseballs off aircraft carriers. <laughs> and almost as much as they love chasing after those baseballs on jet skis. They love it so much that their own elections, once every four years, just aren't quite enough for them. They've got a wandering electoral eye, Andy, and they love meddling in other people's elections too. They've had an itchy medal finger for a while where <laughs> Egypt's concerned. Uh, they covertly and explicitly supported Mubarak for three decades. Then, when the relationship started souring, fell in love with democracy again and got so excited at the scenes from Tahrir Square last year. But now it seems that the Egyptian people may have actually democratically elected Mohamed Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood, who could form a regime more hostile to the United States, their metal fingers seem to be throbbing a bit again, Andy. <laughs> you, can, you can sense them just salivating, oh, I, I shouldn't, but the fact I shouldn't makes me want to even more. <laughs> but... Uh... It has been a you know an amazing time for democracy in in Egypt. They apparently have voted twenty five times in the past fifteen months using an extremely complicated parliamentary system. And John, that is that is too much democracy. I mean, here in Britain, and I know this is similar in America, we smuggle struggle, we struggle to muster the arsedness to vote once every four or five years. In Egypt, they've been doing it almost fortnightly. Although in the process, it had accidentally managed to elect Tutankhamun back into office for an afternoon, in which time the uh, long dead boy king ruled that Bastet, the ancient cat goddess, was the <laughs> hottest of all the goddesses. <laughs> a turnout in the second round of the presidential election was down to fifty percent, with the winning candidate getting just a whisker over fifty percent. Of that. Now, does that sound at all familiar with an American presidential election coming up? <laughs> Welcome to our world, Egypt. Welcome to our world. It's the classic pattern. Fight and die for democracy, then get rapidly, industrially disillusioned by it. But looking at the situation now, this runoff between uh, an Islamist and a relic of the Mubarak era, is this what the protesters wanted 15 months ago? I guess it only goes to show, John, that democracy is like a puppy. It looks all sweet and fluffy when you're looking at it in the shop window, but one day it will crap all over your carpets, whittle in your favourite slippers, before proving disappointingly simplistic in conversation, increasingly attention-seeking and expensive, and then eventually it will die. <laughs> Tax news now! Tax, Andy. Can't live with it. Can't go to schools, hospitals or drive on roads without it. <laughs> For, uh, for lots of wealthy businessmen over the years, tax has always been about the thrill of the chase. You know, <laughs> Kettishly leading the inland revenue on, playing increasingly hard to get, then blue-balling them every fiscal year. <laughs> uh, accountants for some of the richest people in the world have traditionally become like fiscal escapologists, able to contort their way around laws and squeeze their way through loopholes barely visible to the human eye so that they file tax returns which look like they have to be illegal at first, second and 48th glance, but somehow turn out to be inexplicably allowable. <laughs> and this, of course, all came to the head this week in England, Andy, did it not? It did. In fact, uh, Jimmy Carr, our comedic contemporary yes. from the uh, late 90s, uh, open mic circuit. In fact, I'm recording near Tottenham Court Road tube station, literally yards mm -hmm. from where I first met Jimmy Carr doing a gig at mm -hmm. Cool Eddie's Comedy Club. Do you remember that? <laughs> Good gig. Terrific Good gig. gig. Yeah. Um, Underneath a Chinese restaurant, was that's it? That's right, yeah. And uh, yeah. You know, his career has been a raging success commercially, almost from day one. Uh, but he's been uh, was revealed by the Times newspaper uh, to be using one of the many widely used tax aversion schemes. Uh, this one was called K2. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the K2 scheme involves climbing the notoriously treacherous <laughs> second highest mountain in the world, then leaving your bank card at the top and pretending you have no money at all. I think that's right. <laughs> there you go. It, that's a little, either... <laughs> a little joke for all you fans of mountains over 8,500 metres high. Now you can all ever rest. <clears throat> it's, oh, oh, no, 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 no. Hey, don't worry. Don't worry. There are, on, there are only four mountains in the world over 8,500 metres high, so there won't be lots of more puns this week. Back to the story about the Times newspaper catching Jim Carr. Catch it, catching John Carr. That's the that's one of those four. I mean, I thought that was technically quite quite well crafted. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah it's good. just a shame that no one really knows about that mountain. It doesn't get a lot of I, get a lot of publicity. I have to confess that in a, in a, a company that was once closely related to the Bugle, in their lift they have a TV screen, and the image, the only images that you ever get are pictures of the highest peaks in the world. <laughs> uh, but it starts at right. Mont Blanc upwards, so I actually was, was, for once, I understood you, Andy. Yeah. I guess your, uh, your attitude uh, to puns, Andy, is the same as so many mountaineers' attitude towards the greatest mountains on <laughs> Earth. You know, why, why do you do puns, Andy? Because they're there. I guess that's yeah. your only... <laughs> That's your only yeah. rationale. I, like, I, I don't mind if there is a 38% chance of death. I'm going to take it on. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever the K2 scheme involves, and basically it seems to involve sacking yourself, then loaning yourself loads of money on the slow understanding with yourself that you don't have to pay it back. But anyway, Prime Minister David Cameron heroically stepped into the breach and slammed Jimmy for this, calling the scheme very dodgy. And he thus became the first comedian for a considerable while to be heckled by a sitting Prime Minister. <laughs> and when David Cameron slams you for having dubious tax affairs, well, you know bloody well that he knows bloody well exactly what he's talking about. Because yeah. he is the leader of the f***ing Conservative Party. <laughs> and under his government, the Inland Revenue basically let off uh, Vodafone from a, a multi-billion quid tax bill allegedly. Uh, the tycoon Philip Green, boss of the adequate quality clothing giant Topshop, uh, and was appointed a government advisor, despite being a man who is to paying tax what Marie Antoinette is to hat modelling these days. Uh, Lord Ash- Ashcroft, former Tor- Tory party deputy chairman and treasurer, well, he's been in less than entirely patriotic in his tax affairs. And the list of wealthy tax averse with links to the Tories goes on and on and includes, according to some reports this week, David Cameron's own late father. So when David Cameron tells you that your tax arrangements are very dodgy, Perhaps he means it as a compliment and an incentive. So when you do go that extra step further and upgrade them from very dodgy to f***ing dodgy, then you are in line for a knighthood. <laughs> now, now, in full disclosure, Jimmy Carr is a lovely man, Andy. I like him very much. And I'm also simultaneously not in the least bit surprised to see that he was involved in something <laughs> like this. Now, he has not broken the law. What he did was depressingly fine. But as you mentioned, there has been a media tornado afterwards that uh, the Prime Minister tried to jump on top of and ride all the way to public <laughs> approval. Uh, as you said, he criticised Jimmy, calling his tax arrangements morally wrong, which is a little rich coming from someone who oversees the morally wrong tax laws that make what he did morally possible. <laughs> That's like the owner of a bakery that sells only shit pies, saying it's absolutely disgusting when someone chooses to eat one. I mean, sure, you're right. Technically, it is disgusting. But if you check your receipts drawer, you may find that you have something to do with that. <laughs> it all goes to show... Uh, that uh, tax, basically in this country, has become the marginally less popular of the two renowned inevitabilities of life, narrowly behind its friend, rival and colleague, death. As you say, the wealthy have always had a well-honed nose for sidestepping tax, and it does make you think that they probably have a 
pretty good shot at evading death as well. It would not come as a surprise if somewhere on the Cayman Islands there are a colony of 250-year-old death exiles sitting on a veranda sipping a mint julep and stroking their pet lies on the head. And again, the great and the good are just not setting an example, John. The Queen's own mother. What was she called again? The, the Queen... Uh, uh, mother? Q- Queen Q-tip. mother. Q-tip. The Q-tip. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, She was quite openly living in death exile for years in this country, but she could get away with it because of who she was and who she knew. Typical, John. Absolutely typical. Uh, Jimmy Carr has said he made, I quote, a terrible error of judgment over using this uh, tax avoidance scheme. Well, you know, I mean, that depends, Andy, because financially he made a tremendous judgment. <laughs> he played the system and he won. Uh, morally, he made a personal judgment. That is a grey area. The only black and white issue here is that as a comedian, he made a spectacularly hypocritical judgment. <laughs> because earlier this year on the uh, TV show in England, 10 O'Clock Live, he did a sketch poking fun at Barclays paying a 1% tax rate uh, in a sketch that referred to aggressive and amoral, blood-hungry tax lawyers. That is just the one thing (laughs) that you don't get to do, Andy. It seems that he can shadily avoid all the tax that he is legally inexplicably allowed to. That's fine. What he can't do is do that and tell that joke as well. So he can either avoid all that tax or tell that joke, making that one expensive joke. I haven't seen the joke, Andy, but I can only presume that it was incredibly funny. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, for, for three million quid a year or whatever it's worth. <laughs> that's a, you know, that's a pretty amazing fun... That's a, that's a great joke. Um, Chancellor George Osborne recently claimed that he was left shocked after finding out the extent to which multimillionaires are exploiting tax loopholes mm-hmm. yes, and I'm vowed sure to take, was. quotes, action. What the f***? You're the fucking chance of the exchequer. You shouldn't be shocked by that. That is like a heart surgeon being shocked by how much blood splurts everywhere only hacks or someone open. <laughs> the problem is, our tax systems have more loopholes in them than a barbed wire fetishist's woolly jumper. So, <laughs> and so once you're beyond a certain level of income and with a tax lawyer who not only knows his onions but also knows how not to have to pay for those onions and how to make sure <laughs> other people therefore have to pay proportionately more for lower quality onions, then tax essentially becomes a voluntary act of philanthropy. And the wealthy (laughs) basically live in this jacuzzi of amorality. And it just proves that the law (laughs) is an ass, John. It is an ass. And what an ass is not very good at, they're not very good at running fast enough to catch someone driving a Lamborghini. So what you're left with (laughs) is an ass standing on the side of the road trying to hitchhike a ride from someone in a Lamborghini without (laughs) thumbs. It's no wonder it doesn't work, John. It's no wonder it doesn't work. And it is certainly a problem that if famous people, or not as importantly from a media traction angle, not famous people, shirk their taxes, then in effect, a bin man ends up subsidising a millionaire's yachting habit, and a nurse ends up, in effect, helping keep a tycoon's love child secret. This is not as much of a problem as it might be, because we are a very generous nation when it comes to giving to charity, which makes up the tax shortfall. You know, take the Help for Heroes charity, a charity for injured uh, ex-service personnel. Now, there wouldn't need to be a Help for Heroes if the government spent more money helping heroes, or at least splashing out on some functioning military equipment, so they didn't have to be quite so f***ing heroic in the first place. (laughs) And if there is a solution to this, John, it comes in shame. Because if there is one thing a British person hates and fears more than anything else, 
it is an awkward social situation. <laughs> now, if a hypothetical Lord Cockstorm shelters £500 million a year in a tax haven on a rubber dinghy somewhere in the mid-Atlantic or wherever, then he should be forced to turn up to the funeral of a soldier who has died because the Ministry of Defence could only afford to give him a plastic Star Wars helmet instead of a real helmet, and he should have to say, I'm very sorry, at least let me pay for the sandwiches. And if you can do that and live with it, then frankly, good luck to you. You have good earned luck. your free bonus millions. <laughs> Lighter news now, Syria update! (laughs) And in an act of impressive bravery, a Syrian fighter pilot defected this week after landing his plane at a military airbase in the north of Jordan and asking for asylum. It is a pretty spectacular way to defect, Andy. Let's remember, Rudolf Nureyev slipped away by evading KGB agents at an airport, and that was impressive at the time. But this guy has really raised the bar. Now, if you turn up to a country in anything less than a fully operational MiG-21 fighter jet, it's just going to look like you don't really want to be there. Um, Syria has condemned the pilot as a traitor, and... And this this really is fantastic. And has asked the Jordanian government for the return of its plane. <laughs> those, listen, those are some balls, Andy. Yep. Those are some big, loathsome balls. <laughs> do, do, are we sure this plane doesn't have some baseball dents in it? <laughs> the rest of the news in Syria is absolutely brutal. Um, there, are, I mean, It's hard to even know how to begin to address this, Andy. I'm going to have to interrupt you there, John, because Syria does not matter anymore. Because England are the greatest football team in the world again. Yes! The greatest team. Sport of Come on, England! Come on, England! After a quite glorious, with the odds, victory over the mighty footballing mega gods of Ukraine, one goal to nil. Now, I mean, it was. I mean, this has got to be. This is a beacon of hope for citizens and the oppressed all around the world, John. I mean, you do not beat. The 52nd ranked national team in the f***ing universe with a single lucky goal and some crackpot officiating. Without being heroes for all humanity, John. Three lions, Andy. (laughs) Eleven lions! There were eleven lions on the pitch and there were were eight lions as substitutes on the bench. (laughs) There were a lot of lions, that's what I'm saying. Lions do traditionally have a bit of a heavy first touch and find a passing game notoriously difficult. (laughs) But they put the yards in, John. They put the yards in. They care. Look, I mean, sport has come through again, Andy. When the world yings, sport yangs. Whenever light, life gets too painful, let sport be the emotional <laughs> anaesthetic to numb you to your very bones. Uh, Euro 2012, uh, for those that aren't aware, is taking place at the moment, and England are still in it, uh, despite playing a style of football which is not easy on any of the five human senses. <laughs> but who cares about that, Andy? It's our sport, we invented it, and we'll ruin it if we want to. <laughs> The press reaction here has been gently hysterical, mm-hmm. I would say. They've basically come to the conclusion after these three group games in which England have done a bit better than expected that England are basically now doing right everything they've previously always done wrong. And this is this will remain true at least until they lose on Sunday to <laughs> Italy when it'll turn out that they've actually been doing the same things wrong all along. Uh, or if they sneak past Italy, maybe on penalties or with another fluky goal, they'll have been doing what they should have been doing all through history. A combination of caution, discipline, opportunism and bare-balled luck that has seen us through heroically to the quarterfinals. 
Uh, the tournament has not been without some controversy. The uh, Ukrainian Prime Minister, Mykola Azarov, has walked into trouble over a bet he made with a Sweden fan. Uh, he had bet this Swedish fan uh, a beer that Ukraine would beat Sweden in their opening match. And uh, when they did, he invited the Swedes to have a beer with him at the government offices in Kiev. Uh, a widely distributed photograph showed the apparently usually dour Prime Minister smiling broadly with a football scarf around his neck, uh, raising a pint of beer with his Swedish guest. That sounds like a nice gesture, doesn't it, Andy? The leader of a country reaching out to a guest in his country and offering hospitality whilst simultaneously singing, Two, one, <laughs> two, one, you're not singing anymore, you're shit and you know you are. <laughs> cheers, cheers, by the way. <laughs> it's, you know, it's a heartwarming story yeah. until you find out that Ukrainian politics is exactly as petty as politics anywhere else in the world. In fact, even more so, because one opposition presidential candidate, Viktor Yushchenko, actually got poisoned less than 10 years ago. <laughs> but the opposition party in Ukraine jumped into action, criticising the Prime Minister for drinking alcohol, which is apparently strictly forbidden on official premises. They said it is shameful and inadmissible when the leaders of the country contradict the law and the principles of defending morality by beginning to publicise consumption of strong drinks during work hours and on state premises. To which, I guess, the outsider looking in really has to say, you fucking poisoned someone! <laughs> you, you poisoned someone! Let the man have a... Stop poisoning people, <laughs> then get to the drinking on, public, on government premises. Maybe that's what the poisoning was all about, just merely raising awareness of the dangers of putting toxic substances into your body or merely accelerating that process yep. by putting in a fatal dose. Well, that's just, that is responsible politics, John. UEFA has been uh, criticised for uh, various fines it's given out. It's fi fined various countries, football associations, um, in the reason of sort of £60,000, I think, for their fans indulging in racist chanting of quite mm -hmm. appalling uh, dimensions. And yet it find the Danish centre forward Nicholas Bentner a hundred thousand pounds for wearing some sponsored underpants. Oh my and god. It does I mean, clearly oh Bentner Bentner is a tool. I mean let's not let's not Oh let's not beat listen, about the bush here. You know, that's but he's a power tool, Andy. He's a powerful power tool. <laughs> but the argument is not about whether finding him a hundred thousand pounds or not is right or wrong. Mm -hmm. It's these fines for racism being so much less. Than that. Let UEFA, the market decide, Andy. Let UEFA, the market decide. UEFA in mitigation did issue a statement condemning Adolf Hitler as, quotes, a naughty man who had a tendency towards <laughs> impoliteness. So <laughs> you can see where they're coming from. Uh, the Germany-Greece match tonight, as we record, has been overshadowed by the financial niggle between uh, the nations over the bailout deal. And I just hope, John, that uh, the football comes through and doesn't spill over into ugly scenes where Georgios Karagounis of Greece and Mesut Ozil of Germany have a stand-up row in the centre circle about the fiscal dangers <laughs> of punitive bailout sanctions. <laughs> and some quick injury updates ahead of England's big clash with Italy on Sunday, which you can hear me commentating on uh, on uh, Absolute 90s Radio and uh, their website as well, and there'll be a highlights package. It's not, it's not available outside Britain, I think, as a stream, is it, Chris? Uh, not legally live, no. But uh, there will be a highlights package Definitely. that you can uh, download after I'm doing with Russell Howard this week. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it should be a hoot. Um, 
Selfish footballer, though, I mean, to be fair. He's got skills. Well, but. beyond... Well, yes, but beyond selfish, Andy. <laughs> beyond selfish, because, you know, if you're... You have to deliver. The premium is on delivering if you're going to keep the ball that much. And I just, I just think that glitter doesn't do that. <laughs> so do tune in on Sunday at uh, 7.45 UK time, if you can. Can I play Russell this clip? <laughs> if you want, it's nothing I've not By said all to means, his face. He, f- he flatters to deceive, Chris. <laughs> OK. <laughs> Uh, injury news England's Andy Carroll uh, luckily is fit for the rest of the tournament despite being trapped for two minutes under a hotel carpet he said I thought I heard a guinea pig calling for help but it was in fact manager Roy Hodgson listening to Mariah Carey on his headphones Uh, goalkeeper Joe Hart also set to be fit despite grazing an earlobe trying to hear what concrete sounds like and Stephen Gerrard is fit despite pranging a car filming the chase scene for Goldslayer, the forthcoming Hollywood biopic of the former one-cap England striker Michael Ricketts. <laughs> Big lad. <laughs> also, uh, bad news, uh, England's brilliant striker Steve Bloomer is out of the Euros after dying in 1938 at the age of 64. And his uh, chosen replacement, Dixie Dean, has also been ruled out dead. <laughs> Meanwhile, who's Italy's key man, John? Well, it would have to be the midfield maestro, Andrea Pirlo. He's represented his nation, of course, at every age group level, from the under-3s up to the under-100s, which we're seeing him play in uh, these days. <laughs> Amongst uh, Pirlo's many hobbies, he likes to guess how old trees are and owns a portable tree x-ray to check after he's made his guess. As a baby, he was bitten by the early 1980s Italian midfielder Giancarlo Antonioni. Uh, and from this... Perlo got his amazing passing powers. He's a shy man, so so shy in fact that if anyone draws a face on a football in training, he cannot bring himself to kick it. But he's also a scientific experimenter and once tried to mate his cat with his neighbour's dog to see if he could create the perfect hybrid pet. He ended up with a guinea pig and a court case. And he also once had an argument with his neighbour about the trimming rights of a hedge that was resolved with the best of 101 game of scissors, paper, stone. So he's the man England need to keep their eye on, John. He can pick a pass. So what you like about Andrea Pirlo, he can pick a pass. Other sport news now and Olympics news. Uh, Listen, Andy, if we know one thing about the Olympics, it's that it is a transcendent celebration of humanity, of excellence and of human competition. And also that you do not f*** with it, Andy. (laughs) Because if you f*** with the Olympics, Andy, they will f*** with you right back. In fact, those five glorious Olympic rings stand for do not f*** with us. The the US Olympic Committee uh, this week sent out a cease and desist letter to a knitting-based social network for hosting a knitting Olympics. Remember what those rings also stand for, Andy? We ain't about f***ing knitting. Now, the... The, the incredibly popular knitting social network Ravelry hosted a Rave Olympics, a knitting competition for users that included events like an Afghan marathon and a scar- and scarf hockey. The uh, kn- knitters were supposed to basically compete in each event whilst watching the actual games on TV. So you can see why they posed a clear present threat, Andy, to everything that <laughs> the Olympics stands for. Uh, here is a quote from the actual cease and desist letter. And if you are operating heavy machinery or mending a tile on a roof, <laughs> I must warn you, this gets very funny very fast. <laughs> this is how it begins. Uh, the athletes of Team USA have usually spent the better part of their entire lives training for the opportunity to compete at the Olympic Games and represent their country in a sport that means everything to them. For many, the Olympics represent the pinnacle of their sporting career. 
Over more than a century, the Olympic Games have brought athletes around the world together to compete at the Olympic Games and represent their country in a sport that means everything to them. So far, so good, Andy. But here we go. We believe that using the name Rave Olympics for a competition that involves an Afghan marathon, scarf hockey and sweater triathlon, among others, tends to denigrate the true nature of the Olympic Games. In a sense, it is disrespectful to our country's finest athletes and fails to recognise or appreciate their hard work. But here's the thing that you also need to know, Andy. You don't f*** with the Olympics, sure, we all know that, but you definitely don't f*** with knitters. (laughs) Knitters... Don't mess around, Andy. And if you ever step up to them, you would better have a pair of high-end needles in your hand and you better have come ready to knit. Because they also have five knitted Olympic rings in five different coloured wools. And those rings stand for Knitters Don't Play That Shit. Because <laughs> apparently these knitters were extremely offended by the tone of the letter and they mobilised. Members of the Knitting Network left a huge amount of messages on the US Olympics team's Facebook page, nearly melted down Twitter and bombarded them with a deluge of emails. They went in so hard that, and you are not going to believe this, (laughs) the USOC backed down in (laughs) in a statement posted recently on their website. A spokesman said, and again... If you're using a power saw or flying a light aircraft at the moment, you may want to be careful, because this statement could cause you to buddy-holly yourself into a mountain. (laughs) The statement said, Thanks to all of you who have posted, tweeted, emailed and called regarding the letter sent to the organisers of the Rave Olympics. Like you, we're extremely passionate about what we do. The letter sent to the organisers was a standard form cease and desist letter that explained why we need to protect our trademarks in legal terms. Rest assured, as an organisation that has many passionate knitters, we were never intend to make this a personal attack on the knitting community or to suggest that knitters are not supportive of Team USA. We apologise for any insult and appreciate your support. Holy shit, Andy! The IOC wouldn't back down to India over the Bhopal disaster which killed thousands of people and the USOC just caved to a bunch of knitters. It's the American dream, John. Yes! That is why as a nation... You can hit baseballs from an inflatable batting cage right. off an aircraft right. carrier into That's a right. crowd full of jet skiers. <laughs> Bugle feature news now and fossil humping. <laughs> Scientists in Germany have caught a pair of 50 million year old turtles hard at it, John. Hard <laughs> mid hump at it. Courts uh, 50 million years ago, John, as one mm-hmm. turtle said to a turtlette, All right, Shelley, you look lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Want to do it in a volcanic lake? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they reckon that they were uh, killed by volcanic gases as they uh-huh. sank in the water as mating turtles have an erotic tendency to do. And I guess, John, in a way, this is the ultimate form of exhibitionism. These turtles have decided to do it where, where they're going to get fossilised. <laughs> this is... And viewed by people 50 million years from now. David Cronenberg is going to make a film about these turtles, John. The dirty bastards. Dirty, dirty it... bastards. It's scientists in Germany, as you say, have unearthed the first ever fossilised instance of copulating animals with backbones. To put that in layman's terms, what they essentially found was the fossilised remains of two turtles banging. <laughs> and... 
as you, as you say, these uh, these turtles sank 50 million years ago to deep layers of a lake where they perished due to deadly volcanic gases <laughs> or other toxins in the lake's lower layers. Mmm, deadly volcanic <laughs> gases and other toxins. Oh, yeah! <laughs> let's, let's call this what it is, Andy, fossil porn. <laughs> let's not pretend that that announcement wasn't made by German archaeologists with huge bonus. <laughs> The turtles were preserved in a turtle-style sexual position, uh, and the, mm-hmm. the female turtle is 20% bigger than the male, uh, who is thought by scientists to have been into big shells. And <laughs> the male turtle... Ah, like big shells on a cannot lie! <laughs> the male turtle's been credited with having maintained the world's longest ever continual staunchy pole, and he has now been offered work in the animal pornography industry, or... <laughs> Wildlife programming, as they're rather euphemistically known. Your emails now, and this one comes in on the subject Disastrous Consequences of the Elvis Hologram from Marco Begovich in Cleveland, Ohio. Dear John, Andy and Chris, the Elvis Hologram, whilst an impressive technological feat, brings with it some potentially serious consequences. It could drive Elvis impersonators out of business. For one estimate, Elvis impersonators number 200,000. Is our fragile economy ready to take the hit of that many people suddenly out of work? Also, keep in mind, many of these are fat Elvis impersonators who must have an expensive weight-related healthcare cost. If that wasn't scary enough, let me remind you that Elvis knew karate. How many of these Elvis impersonators know karate? And what would they do if they were suddenly deprived of an ability to earn a living? We may have to deal with roving gangs of violently vindictive Elvis impersonators. <laughs> Please help stop the hologram. It's a very uh, dangerous thing for the world. Uh, we have another great email here from John Drummond uh, called Bugle198 causing another social faux pas. Uh, he says, To Andy, Chris and John, in order of the level of blame for the following embarrassing incident. You guys get a lot of emails detailing how laughing at your podcast in public at inappropriate times have caused very awkward moments for the listener involved. Well, here's another for the pile. Just today, I was on the bus on my way home from work, looking very businesslike in my suit while reading the paper and listening to my iPod. Said iPod was playing Bugle 198. When Andy likened Eurozone economic policies to someone slamming a series of George Foreman grills onto his nads, I began laughing hysterically. My newspaper was open to the sports section of the time, which under normal circumstances would have raised no attention at all. Unfortunately, as proclaimed by the full-page headline easily visible to my fellow riders, I was at this very moment reading the latest testimony in the Jerry Sandusky child sex abuse trial. Oh, Oh dear. dear. Needless to say, there is little humour in a college football coach abusing his power and influence to indulge in serial paedophilia. I took a quick glance around to see if I caught anyone's attention. The bus was full, so that was a distinct possibility, especially from the two people sitting directly behind me. No, I didn't turn around and say, it's not what you think. That would only have made it worse. Thank God I was within a few stops of getting off. Hopefully none of these people will ever see me again, and if they do, they'll just think, there's that freak who thinks sodomising kids is funny. Thanks a lot, Boys, yours, John Drummond. Listen, Andy, it was a great joke. You got nothing to be scared of. <laughs> and remember, buglers, if you are going to bugle, please yeah, bugle, bugle safe. safely. Bugle, bugle safe. safe. Bugle safe. Do keep your emails coming in to info at thebuglepodcast.com and don't forget to check out our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash the hyphen bugle. And, uh, well, we've got a couple of weeks off coming off, uh, coming yeah. up. Before the historic moments of Bugle issue 200, 
I know, nearly 200, nearly the double century. That's right, so we will be putting out supplementary bugles in those two weeks, containing we're not entirely sure yet, <laughs> depending yeah. on whether or not we can get access to some, some of our back catalogue. Um, mm. But uh, with Bugle issue 200, some very exciting developments for the Bugle, hopefully we will have the launch of Bugle merchandise. Yes, Arguably very Arguably a, a while after we could have done it. And, uh, well, that's the kind of business acumen, Andy, that we've become famous for yeah, over the years. We're a machine, John. We're a commercial machine. And Singularly <laughs> failing to capitalise on anything. <laughs> and says Mr. Sequel to the Smurfs. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll also uh, be launching uh, a new sort of voluntary subscription scheme uh, where you can help contribute to the ongoing life of the Bugle. That will come up in three weeks' time. On Bugle 200, which will be unquestionably possibly the showbiz event of the millennium. It's going to be so huge. Far. It's going to be absolutely huge. massive. Uh, in the meantime, you can listen to my football commentary on Sunday. Uh, I'm going to plug some gigs, John. Are you going to come to any? Are you busy uh, in America? Possibly and possibly not. <laughs> Wednesday in Lytham St. Anne's, the 27th of July? No? Uh, yes, I'll be at that one. Okay. I'll be at that one. Also, uh, uh, Durham Gala on the 30th. Inverness I'm not, I'm not, I'm on not the 1st there. of July. Fuck and Inverness. the Derby Assembly Rooms on the seventh. Oh dear! Come on, <laughs> come on, buglers! I've got, I've got kids to feed. And then yeah. Stockton and Salford on the weekend of the fourteenth and fifteenth mm-hmm. of July. Roll up, roll up for the show of the century and uh, political animal on the twenty eighth of June this Thursday with me, Al Murray, uh, Richard Herring. Uh, Josie Long and the magnificent Simon Munnery as Alan Parker, Urban wow. Warrior. Strong, wow, that is a good, strong that's a good bill. Strong bill. That is a good bill. Possibly Holy shit. Possibly clashing with England's Euro semi-final against Germany. We'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> Thank you, Buglers. Goodbye. We'll see you in the next century of Bugles. Bye-bye. Bye! Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you 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 must be so excited. Listen now.